Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. We are wrapping up a series about redemptive history which is essentially helping us understand the story of Scripture and really the story of history. And if you've been with us this semester, we have learned about God's plan for the nations, we've learned about our identity in Christ, and now we are going to have a good handle on God's Word or the story of Scripture, okay? Today we're going to be wrapping up by looking at the Millennial Kingdom of Christ, okay? Which is the inauguration of the last age of Scripture. And I know some of you are thinking like, oh, I did not sign up for Revelation this morning. It's fine. It's fine. It's going to be good. We're going to have a good time together. Um, But before we begin today, I do think it's important to ask this question. And I want you to just think think in your brain, think in your, your head, the answer to this question. Do people have hope today? Do people have hope today? As I talk with students and as I read news reports, And as I see the themes that come through like today's TV shows and movies, there seems to be an absence of hope or a general feeling of hopelessness that surrounds our world. And when we look at our, the issues that we face in our culture, that face our politicians, that face our schools, families, it's obvious that we are facing a hopelessness crisis. Now, why, why is that? Why are we facing a hopelessness crisis? Well, I think the answer is pretty obvious, and you might think, oh, Kevin, that's a cop-out answer, but the answer is sin, because of sin's effects on not only ourselves, but on this earth as well, we feel like things are hopeless, and we feel like they're going nowhere. We see war in Ukraine, we see earthquakes in Turkey, we see millions die in a global pandemic, and we think, when will it all end? What can I do to fix this? Now, if we ask that question, that's a sad life to put the salvation of the world on your shoulders. And frankly, it's something that God never intended to put there. In fact, the hopelessness of this world reveals a deep reality in our hearts, doesn't it? It reveals that we crave a Savior. Not only a personal Savior, but a Savior that will put an end to these hopeless situations in our world. But the good news is that Christ is returning to end this age and end Satan's dominion on earth. He will execute perfect justice and rule over the earth. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, is the culmination of redemptive history, or as some put it, the end times. Okay? And in particular, we're going to be talking about Christ's millennial kingdom. So our main idea, or what we're going to be seeing today, is that God is restoring man's dominion over the earth. We are going back to Eden. And because of that, we can have hope in the future restoration of all things. So how are we going to get there? We're going to see it in a few ways. Uh, Actually, I don't have my main points up there. That's okay. Number one is going to be how do we get to the millennial kingdom? Number two, Satan has no influence on the millennial kingdom. And lastly, the millennial kingdom is ruled by Christ and his saints. But before we get into the passage today, we got to lay some groundwork, okay? There's a lot that happens before Revelation 20, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little recap, so if you haven't been with us during this series, we have covered basically the seven ages of Scripture, okay? 
Basically, the goal of this series was to get you to feel like you had a handle on when you opened your Bible, wherever it was, you knew how God related to humanity. So the first was in the age of innocence. And when you see this age, it takes place in the to the section, okay? So the age of innocence existed from creation to the fall. Age of conscience, in which God related by establishing moral or conscience law, was from the fall to the flood. Then it was the age of government, in which God put a lid on evil through uh, allowing them to govern themselves. That was from the flood to the Tower of Babel. The age of promise, which was Abraham's call all the way to the Mount Sinai, giving of the law, which uh, started the age of law, which was from Sinai to Christ. Last week, we talked about the age of grace, which is the one that we are currently living in right now. And that is from Christ's first coming into his, until his second coming. And then lastly, the millennial kingdom, which is Christ's second coming until the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, that will last for a thousand years. One of the things that we did was we classified an age. So why are there so many ages? Why isn't it all the same? Well, even though God is unchanging, even though his character is unchanging, an age is a period of time when God interacts differently with humanity. As we've discussed the past three things, three weeks, the thing that triggers a change is in age is the economy of how God relates to mankind. Okay? So, what will change between the age of grace and the age of the millennial kingdom? It's this. In the age of grace, we relate to God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In the age of the millennial kingdom, we will relate to God through Christ but through his direct and personal rule and law over the earth. Okay? Now, before we start reading and interpreting scripture, one of the things that we need to do is understand how do we interpret prophecy and apocalyptic. Now, when John spoke a couple weeks ago, he said, you know, sometimes we just throw our hands up in the air and we say, you know what? I'm going to skip that and I'm just going to read the New Testament, right? Well, hopefully, after today, you'll have a little bit more handle on how to read prophecy and apocalyptic. Sometimes we approach those passages and we're like, I don't really know what to do. Well, get ready, open up your tool belt because I'm about to put tool in there. All right. So the way in which we interpret these passages is the same way or the same technique that we interpret any passage of scripture. We use the historical grammatical approach. And what this is, is you try to understand the history, the genre, or the type of literature the context surrounding it so that you can understand the intended meaning or the intent of the author so that you can understand what this passage is trying to communicate. And in a sense, there is a plain reading of the text. There is a way in which we can read scripture and try to interpret it in a way that honors the author's intended meaning. This is something that we carry today from the Protestant Reformation, is that scripture was meant to be understood. It is not a mystery. It is something that is meant to be understood for its hearers. Scripture is not a mystery, but it is called the word or logos, which means the, the revelation of or the peeling back of the curtain. We can know God better by reading scripture. It's not meant to be a mystery. So when we read prophecy, one of the things we have to keep in mind, this is a quote by Alva J. McLean. He says, there's no such thing as biblical prophecy totally unrelated to history. When we read these passages today, although there might be spiritual ramifications, prophecy is not void from history. When the prophet spoke on behalf of God, it was intended to be understood by the nation of Israel. 
If prophecy or apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature were to be interpreted spiritually, apart from history or tangible realities, then it falls into, quote, a loose aggregation of events, which may mean things to all men. May mean all things to all men, because it's not based in reality or history, but whatever the interpreter wants it to mean, right? So that's the approach we are taking to get today. As we are reading scripture, this is the approach we're taking today. Some disagree about the interpretation of uh, Revelation 20. That's okay. But I choose to take the plain, normal reading of the text, and I'll be presenting it from our church's point of view. Okay? So how do we get to the millennial kingdom? Well, on your table, you're going to have a timeline. Okay? There's a timeline there, which basically describes the end times. And if you're wondering, man, how did they get these things? Guess what? There is so much scripture, so much scripture on this timeline. So if you want to look for yourself, you absolutely can. But how do we get to the millennial kingdom? Well, the first thing that kicks off the start of the end times is known as the rapture. Okay, has anyone ever heard of the rapture? I'm sure you have. We've got a slide that kind of focuses in on the rapture. Um, the rapture uh, there's many views on when this time takes place, but we get uh, the time that we picked right here from looking at the unified story of Scripture from Matthew to Revelation to Isaiah to Zechariah to Ezekiel. And basically, this is what the Moody Bible Institute says. I think it's a really succinct way to describe the rapture. So if you're like, man, what does this even look like? They say, at the time that the dead in Christ will be raised and living Christians will be caught up to meet, that's what rapture means, to be caught up, to meet the Lord in the air and be with him forever. In this resurrection, those who have died in Christ will have their redeemed souls and spirits united with a body similar to Christ's glorified body. This is what we call glorification, the glorification part of salvation. This is what it's talking about. Christians living at the time of this event will not die, but will be changed to be like Christ. Okay, so this is the start of the end times, okay? And the rapture is whenever Christ will come down for his saints, for his church, and the church will be caught up with him. The dead will be resurrected, and they will go to heaven to be with Christ. Okay, so Christ is coming for his church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, it describes the rapture like this. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will, be, we will always be with the Lord. The second major event that takes place while the church is in heaven. Okay, So if you look at your timeline, you'll see that little uh, brown, green, olive line. It goes up, we're in heaven, and it goes across, we are in heaven during this time takes place. And it's called the tribulation. It's called the tribulation. Uh, the tribulation will take place on the earth while the church is in heaven, but the tribulation is not a good time, okay? It is trials. It is described pretty, pretty terrifyingly, but the church will be spared, but ethnic Israel will not. They will be on this earth, okay? So ethnic Israel will remain, and the goal of the tribulation is really to get uh, the, the, the nation of Israel to turn back to, to the Messiah, Jesus. So this is what the, the uh, Moody Bible Institute says about the tribulation. The rapture will also begin or inaugurate a period that the Bible characterizes as the great day of his wrath, the great tribulation, and the time of Jacob's trouble, or Jacob meaning Israel. 
This time of unprecedented difficulty will affect Israel and all nations. Its purpose will be to prepare Israel for her Messiah. Tribulation, as described by Jesus in Matthew 24, 21, is, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. This time will be seven years based on a lot of prophetic interpretation. And while this is taking place, the church will be as what we call the judgment seat of Christ, in which their good works will be judged. And basically how we have stewarded this life matters because our rewards in the millennial kingdom and beyond will be based on how we live this life. Our salvation is not dependent upon our works, but our reward is. So the life that we live right now, even if we've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, we are saved. Okay, We are justified. We are made right before Christ. But he will look upon our works and base our reward in the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and new earth based on how we lived this life. So it's not once you believe you got your fire insurance and you're good, but we are called to live a good life, a life that reflects the salvation uh, that we've received. And we're supposed to live in practice what we are in position, which is righteously declared before God. All right. The next thing before the millennial kingdom is Jesus's second coming. Jesus's second coming. This is what inaugurates the millennial kingdom, the time in which we're about to talk about. Okay. Once again, the Moody Bible Institute it describes it like this. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ will return with the hosts of heaven, the church, as well as the church to establish the messianic kingdom on earth. His kingdom will last for a thousand years. At this second coming, the Antichrist will be cast into the lake of fire and Satan will be bound for a thousand years. The nations and their representatives will be judged. Israel will be restored to her land, never more to be removed. Christ will reign with firmness and equity. His kingdom will be marked by material and spiritual blessing since the curse upon the earth will be removed. Okay, Christ himself promises this in his Olivet Discourse or one of his final sermons in Matthew, Matthew 24, 30 through 31. He says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, at this point, I'm sure you all are like, wow, this is a lot of information, but we are summarizing a lot so that we can cover this timeline, okay? But on your table, there are scripture references. So if you want to dig into the weeds later, if you want to learn more about this, you absolutely can. That's why we gave you that handout. Um, we didn't make this up out of thin air. This isn't, this isn't something that we just you know, tried to put together, but we have done our absolute best to interpret the scripture and interpret it in a plain way by honoring authorial intent and honoring what the scriptures are actually saying and not just allegorizing it, but actually trusting that what the authors were writing were intended to be understood by the hearers. Something you also might be thinking is, can I even trust this plan? Can I even trust this plan? Well, just imagine you're on a road trip for a moment, okay? You're on a road trip and you look outside, it's dark. You look around and you've been on this trip for a while, but you know the driver, you know he's seen the destination already, he's familiar with the road, he knows where he's going. In fact, the ride so far has shown his skill in navigating this road. 
So here's what we can take away from this. We can trust God on this journey. He is sovereign. He knows how this will end. He is powerful and nothing can happen outside the counsel of his will. We don't have to worry on the way. We can trust that he will get us to our destination in the best way and in the best timing. So let's talk about these ideas at our table for the next 10 minutes or so, and then we'll gather back and talk about the actual millennial kingdom. Hope you had some really good conversation at tables talking about um, those questions. We're going to continue. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. We're going to start looking at the millennial kingdom of Christ. And so we've talked about a lot of passages today, but our primary text in the second half will be this one, okay? Now, if you were with us all of last year in the worship service, Pastor Mark went through the entire book of Revelation. So you know that Revelation is a revelation about Jesus. Yes, man, that feels good. Okay. Uh, Well, what has happened at this point in Revelation 20? Where are we at? Well, at this point in John's Revelation... He's revealed a few things. So basically taking place in Revelation 19 and um, a few chapters earlier, we've seen that Jesus has returned to the earth. Number two, he's returned to the earth with his bride, the church. Number three, Jesus has ended the world system because four, Jesus has judged the Antichrist, false religion, and enemy armies. Okay, that's what happened in Revelation 19. So now we're in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6. Let's read it together. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, bound him up for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection." Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this is what some people call the thousand years, the millennium, the millennial kingdom, or the messianic kingdom. When Christ returns, he will inaugurate a new age in history. Revelation 20, it gives us insights and on what those thousand years might look like. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 3 and make a few observations. And the main idea of verses 1 through 3 is that Satan has no influence on the millennial kingdom. Satan has no influence on the millennial kingdom. In 1 John 5, 19, John, the same author of Revelation, says this, verse 19, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The current world in which we live in is under the power of the evil one, or Satan. doesn't mean that God is not in control but it does mean that Satan has heavy influence on this world and he is deceiving, he is accusing, he is tempting. These are scriptural language describing the devil. But in the millennial kingdom, the cool thing is when we return from Christ, with Christ, the devil will be bound. He will no longer have any dominion or any influence on earth. That's what it says in verse 2. 
he seized the dragon that the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Okay, so Satan has no influence on the millennial kingdom. How long will this bounding of Satan last? Well, I think it's an actual literal thousand years. The most plain reading of this text seems to be that it is actually a thousand years. Some have described that being a picture of fullness or completeness, a thousand years. But then once again, we get into the guessing game. Why not 500 years? Why not 10,000 years? Why not 17 years? You know, look in your Bible and you'll find that a thousand years is mentioned six times. Let's put it on the screen. It's mentioned in verse two, it's mentioned in verse three, it's mentioned in verse four, verse five, verse six, and verse seven. That emphasis leads me to believe that is a literal thousand years in which Christ will reign and which Satan will be bound. Now in verse three and seven, it shows us that Satan will be released after those thousand years to lead a final rebellion. So go down and you'll see in verse three, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. In verse seven, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, if you continue reading Revelation 20 in verses seven through 15, you see what happens after, directly after the millennial kingdom ends. You see what happens to Satan. And it's this, after thousand years, there will be a final rebellion. Okay, verses seven through nine describe that. Verse 10 describes a final defeat of Satan. And verses 11 through 15 is a final judgment of Christ's enemy. A final judgment of Christ's enemies. So what's different between now and the millennial kingdom? Well, Satan's influence is a big one. In the millennium, there will be peace mediated by Christ, uninfluenced by Satan. When we return with Christ... Satan's influence will be no more. No longer do we have to worry about Satan's influence. So it looks like this. In the NFL, a few years ago, there was this toxic teammate, and we've all heard or experienced relationships maybe similar to this, but this teammate bullied another teammate. He used racial epithets, and ultimately it became a cancer for the locker room. Now Satan, in scripture, is described as an accuser, He's described as a tempter. He's described as a deceiver. And just like a uh, teammate can disrupt the peace of an entire locker room, Satan can drive wedges by accusing, tempting, and deceiving. But in the, the hope of the millennium is that Satan will be bound. He will not have influence on this world. So in the millennial kingdom, Satan will be powerless and will be bound. But we also see that the millennial kingdom is ruled by Christ and his saints. By Christ and his saints. So on the flip side, what does the millennial reign of Christ actually look like? On your table, you'll find a timeline of events of the end time. So if you want to reference that again. And on this chart, you will see the section covering the millennial kingdom. And this is the inauguration of a new age, right? That's what we're talking about, in which we relate to God differently, yet still through Christ. This reign of Jesus won't just be spiritual, but it will be physical, earthly, literal, and personal. And this is assumed by the New Testament, the way in Jesus talks. And his return, uh, this passage, it provides more length and a few more details. But we know it's earthly because Jesus actually returns to the earth. That's what happens in verse 9, uh, chapter 19 of Revelation. 
when Jesus judges the Antichrist, he defeats the enemy armies, and he institutes his rule. But an earthly reign was also promised. We see this in Revelation 5.10, that is an earthly reign. Let me, let me read this, and I'll just let you determine if this sounds like an earthly reign. Verse 10, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the, what? Earth. Also, Old Testament prophets anticipated an earthly reign, especially the covenant made to David. If you guys remember the Davidic covenant, it's in 2 Samuel, uh, that his descendant would reign on the throne forever. This is how Ryrie puts it, Charles Ryrie. He puts it in regards to the fulfillment of God's covenants, which have only seen a partial fulfillment up to this point. Up to this point. He says the messianic kingdom will be inaugurated at the second coming of Christ. Then the land promise made to Abraham and his descendants will be fulfilled. Then the promise made to David that his descendant, the Messiah, will sit on the throne of the kingdom forever will be fulfilled. See, without a millennium in which these promises can be fulfilled, this is crazy, the promises have to be canceled or for some reason be fulfilled in some other way than literally. We hope for the millennial kingdom because all the prophecies or all the promises that God has made with his people, some of them have yet to be fulfilled. Many, many, many have been, uh, been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. But we anticipate the second coming in which the rest of God's promises will come to fruition. And Ryrie, he finishes this idea of Christ actually having an earthly reign being significant. Like, why, why would Christ even want to come back? And why would he actually want to do this? Well, it's a beautiful picture. He says, by having an earthly kingdom, Jesus displays that he is triumphant in the same arena where he was seemingly defeated. I'll read that again. By having an earthly kingdom, Jesus displays he is triumphant in the same arena where he was seemingly defeated. Man, I love that. All right, let's continue verses four through six. We see that Jesus' reign will be earthly and not just spiritual, but let's look a little bit at what they say. Verse four, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the, saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand year, years. So in verse 4, we see that Christ will be ruling alongside three groups of people. Okay, And the first is the church. We come back with Jesus when he comes in his second coming. The church comes with him. The church is defined as from Pentecost until the rapture, all those who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, okay? Who have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. These, are, these people are the church. We see this in so many passages. I'll put it on the screen there. Uh, the second is tribulation saints or believers who are converted during the tribulation period. Uh, the scary section in verse 4 that talks about those who were beheaded, who didn't put the image uh, on their forehead or their hands, 
These are believers who came to faith during that seven-year period where the church is in heaven, okay? So during the tribulation, there will still be an opportunity for people to turn to Jesus. And those people who deny the Antichrist, who deny following uh, whatever the Antichrist is telling them to do, those people will be resurrected when Christ returns, okay? So that's the second group of people. The third is Old Testament saints, and these saints will be resurrected when he returns. We see that really in Daniel 12 and in a few other passages as well, but I think that's most persuasive. But essentially, when Christ returns a second time, that's when David, Abraham, all these Old Testament saints will be resurrected and will reign alongside the church and the tribulation saints as well. So there's three groups of people that will reign with Christ in his millennial kingdom. See, when Christ returns, he will bring the glorified, resurrected church with him. And what we know about the intermediate period between the rapture and the second coming of Christ is that the church will not be present for God's wrath and judgment in the tribulation. They'll be at the judgment seat of Christ, where they'll be rewarded for their works based on this judgment. He will appoint believers in verse 4 of Revelation. He will appoint believers to thrones or cities based on how they stewarded their life. We see that in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents. But what else will it look like? It'll look like a theocracy. The world will be ruled like Israel uh, was ruled under the Mosaic law, except that Jesus is going to rule personally and visibly. There will be perfect justice under Christ's rule. This is what it says in Isaiah 2.3. You might not be able to read it on the screen, but it says, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The reign of Christ will be righteous, it will be spiritual, it will be peaceful, it will be religious, yet it will not be in a perfected world. There will be sinners, there will be death, there will be poverty, there will be conflict. The millennial kingdom is the intermediate between today and the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment perfect justice. Just think about what that might look like. Every wrongdoing given the just punishment, every righteous act its proper reward, this is our reality one day, that there will be justice, perfect justice. Man. Revelation 20, uh, Pastor Mark, when he was going through it, he shared this quote, and I want to share it again. It's from Jim Hamilton. He says, if you are a believer in Jesus, 20, verse 4 through 6, is describing your future. Satan is gone from the scene. Christ is reigning on earth. You'll be raised from the dead to sin no more. No satanic deception, no satanic temptation. In the presence of Christ, you will do justice and serve as a priest to God. This is what you were made to do. You were created to enjoy God as king in God's land in free obedience to God's law. Uncontaminated, undefiled, unsullied, no devil prowling around like a roaring lion. Freedom, joy, righteousness. For the believer, there is security and hope in this future. We can be excited knowing that death is not the end of our story. Not the end of the story, but one day we'll be resurrected and we'll rule with Christ. Our life has purpose now and after we die. 
Yet, if you reject Christ, you will also see Jesus, but with a much more painful experience. Friends, if you are not following Jesus, if you have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, there is still time, but we don't know how much time. We have no idea when this period will begin, but if God is pulling on your heart to turn away from your sin and to trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sin, do it today. Make that decision today because we will all see Jesus one day and it's either more glorious than we could ever imagine or more painful than we could ever imagine. But the Lord has shown us that there is hope in this future for those who are in Christ. Let me pray for us and let's have some discussion. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, that we can read it, that we can understand it. And Lord, I pray that you would just show us how we might honor you with our lives today. God, if there's anyone in this room who haven't trusted in you to, uh, for the forgiveness of their sin, I pray that they would do so today, that they would make you the Lord and King of their life, and God, that they might follow you for the rest of their days. Some of us in this room, we might not be following Jesus, but we may have trusted in him. I pray that we would repent from whatever sin is holding us back, whatever shame or guilt is keeping us from following Jesus. And God, I pray that we would repent from that, that we would turn away from that and turn to you. God, I pray that you would be glorified with our lives here and today, that we would not worry about the future, but that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. God, you have a plan. Nothing can stop your plan. And Lord, thank you for including us in your plan. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.